According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Our passage once again today is Proverbs chapter 6. We started looking at the hate passage last week, and I want to get right back to it again this morning. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. And so uh, we're in this section here, verses 16 through 19, a continuation of what preceded, by the way. Each of these paragraphs is building towards the same issue, specifically one who spreads strife among brothers. We see that as the pinnacle of uh, the things that God hates, that which is an abomination to his soul. The seventh item is the ultimate item, is the one that he's really driving at. And that's the uh, the strife spreader in verse 19. We've already seen him because the strife spreader was mentioned in verse 14 as uh, the activity of the Belial, of the worthless person, the wicked man that we were looking at there. And that in turn uh, was a paragraph that came out of the uh, go to the Anto slugger, the passage that preceded that. So what we have is a sequence through this chapter where each paragraph is leading to the next, leading to the next. And, and I like that. To me, that's fruitful because it shows you, as a parent trying to teach these things to a child, that if you don't get off this path, this is where it's going. All right, so get off this path now. Repent. Get get right with the Lord now, because the end of this road is uh, is not a good end. All right, six things the Lord hates. Seven, which are an abomination to Him. Before we begin our study, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that each one of us is filled with the Holy Spirit that our souls are quiet and settled and prepared to receive the truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for your grace. And Father, we thank you for the blessings of the Word of God that goes forth Uh, Father, we don't earn this, we don't deserve this, and yet, Father, time and time again, you faithfully provide the uh, truth that we need, Father, the power of your word that transforms our very being. I thank you, Father, for the blessings of this day, and I ask that we would understand what you have provided. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, so this is point eight in the outline. No, point four in the outline. I scared you, didn't I? Point three was the uh, paragraph before this, verses 12 through 15, as a follow-up to the admonishment against the sluggard, David warned Solomon against Belial, or his full name, Adam Belial, the man of wickedness, the Ish-Awen, the strife spreader. And the strife spreader is where that paragraph is going as it gets there. uh, His heart, with perversity in his heart, continually devises evil who spreads strife. And that moment that he becomes the strife spreader is when we see in verse 15, therefore his calamity will come suddenly because it's that spreading of strife that uh, is the pinnacle of God's hatred, that which is an abomination to his soul. And so we had some subpoints there. I'm not going to review all those. We get to main point four then. Yahweh hates the abominations of his soul. Yahweh hates the abominations of his soul. 
And that's what the literal rendering of the Hebrew is here. The abominations, as it says, seven which are an abomination to him. To him. And the to him there is really his nephesh, his soul. The abominations to his soul or of his soul. That which, when he perceives them, when he observes them, his very soul it recoils in the uh, 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 compelling impulse to drive something from your presence. Revulsion, that's the word I was trying to come up with. A revulsion. An abomination is something that, that induces a revulsion to your soul. In other words, you want nothing to do with it. You push it far from you. And uh, we've seen that before. We'll see it again here this morning. The verb is sane, S-A-N-E, apostrophe, sane. And you close your throat for the aleph, you get sane. Number 8130 in the uh, Strong's Concordance number is 8130. 146 Old Testament usages. So if you want to study this verb, you're going to spend some time doing it. Not only do you have the verb, of course, you have the noun. The verb is to hate. The noun is hatred. And uh, between the verb and the noun, um, you have several. I didn't write down the, uh, the noun or the usages there. I can pull that up next week probably, get that ready for that. In any event, it's a long study. And, and, and I don't know why that surprises us. The Bible has a lot to say about hate. And a lot of times it's human beings that are hating other human beings. We get that. But more often than not, actually, it's not human hate that's in the Bible. The hate that's in the Bible is God's hate in many cases. Okay, And uh, we want to understand that for what it is. Because yes, Yahweh loves, but also Yahweh hates. And some of those passages are the very same passages. You can find the love of Yahweh passages and you can find the hate of Yahweh passages. Sometimes it's the same verse. So subpoint A, Yahweh loves and hates in his non-contradictory perfection. He's not a hypocrite for loving and hating at the same time. We're hypocrites if we uh, fail to understand that love and hate are not opposites, okay? And Satan would try to confuse us in this. The world's message today is uh, creates false definitions of love by, you know, by virtue of uh, denying the appropriate applications of hate. And they turn love and hate as, as opposites when they're really not. We should love what God loves. We should hate what God hates. Because if anything, we have a different attitude than what God has. God needs to show that also to us so that we can make the adjustments necessary. Remember, if, if God thinks one thing and we think something else, we're wrong. <laughs> we have to adjust our thinking to God's thinking in every respect. And that includes hatred. All right? That includes hatred. So we won't go back and reread these, but uh, the, the verses on the love of God, Psalm 11, uh, it's not hard to prove the love of God, by the way. It's pretty easy to do. Uh, but Psalm 11, 7, Proverbs 3, 12, Proverbs 15, 19, Isaiah 61, 8. That's a good one because it's also a hate verse. Jeremiah 31, 3, um, Hosea 11, 1, and Malachi 1, 2. Malachi 1, 2 is also useful because the verse right after that, Malachi 1, 3, is one of the hate verses that we have on the board as well. For the hatred of, of Yahweh, there's Deuteronomy 12, 31, Deuteronomy 16, 22, Proverbs 6, 16. It's interesting, in each of these places, the hatred is really avoidable on the part of people and the things that we're doing that then become the abomination, that become the revulsion to, uh, uh, on God's behalf. All right, so if you want to avoid the hatred of God, quit doing that stuff. <laughs> okay, it's simple. Do you want to line yourself up for blessing or do you want to line yourself up for cursing? 
You want to line yourself up for the love of God or line yourself up for the hate of God? The applications will, will, will follow. Isaiah 1.14, where he's calling names, he's calling Israel, Sodom and Gomorrah. And you want to know what he hates there? He hates their church services. He hates their uh, temple services, all right? He hates their religious uh, observances because it's all legalism with no reality. Inwardly, they're a bunch of hypocrites, and they think that if they just have enough outward sacrifices, then that's, that's good enough. They can do their nod to God. They can uh, make him, you know, placate him and be good to go. They're wrong, okay? There's Isaiah 61, 8 again. Let's grab that one before we move on. Isaiah 61, mainly because I'm forgetting what it says. <laughs> and I know we dealt with it last week. So just to refresh our thinking... I say our, to refresh, to refresh my thinking. You probably all remember from a week ago. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and the burnt offering. Again, it's in a, it's in a, it's in a uh, uh, observance context here with believers or people who should know better that are perverting their, uh, their temple gatherings. So I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and the burnt offering. And I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them. See, it's taught here, it's taught in Malachi, it's taught in several places that if you are approaching God on an irreverent basis, you are robbing God. You are stealing from God. He is entitled to our reverence. He is entitled to our devotion. And we can rob Him and He doesn't put up with it. He hates it, as is described here. Other hatred passages include Jeremiah 12.8, 44.4, Hosea 9.15, Amos 5.21 and 6.8, Zechariah 8.17, and then the Malachi uses Malachi 1.3 and Malachi 2.16. Malachi is, again, there's a contrast there between the love and the hate. There's love in verse 2, there's hate in verse 3. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? I think it's interesting. God, of course, in His infinite perfection, in His holy, absolute love, never stops loving, even when human beings uh, call Him a liar (laughs) and say, you don't love me. How do you love me? How can you say you love me? Okay. Uh, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. In other words, I've loved you unconditionally on a grace basis. You didn't earn it and didn't deserve it. But I have hated Esau and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. And so there's the contrast there. This is a non-contradictory perfection. It's not, uh, in fact, when you study the love of God, you study the hate of God, uh, you've got to have both sides to the picture. You can't magnify this one and turn it into an idol and then deny that that one even exists. All right, that's a misdefinition of what love is in in terms of God and His very nature. All right. Secondly, we want to remind ourselves about abomination. We studied this earlier in Proverbs chapter 3, so I won't spend a ton of time on it this morning, but just to refresh our thinking. Subpoint B then, abomination was first used in Proverbs 3.32, where it was featured in a series of fundamental contrasts. And the Bible is good for this. The Bible is good for drawing contrasts for laying things out in either-or language, in black-and-white terms. In Proverbs 3.32, abomination was used, and it was featured in a series of fundamental contrasts. So 
Let's start with that, Proverbs 3.32, and then we'll go back to um, Leviticus. Proverbs 3.32. And here's the contrast. The uh, devious are an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate with the upright. Okay, And so there's intimacy where if you're intimate with somebody, that means you want to be close. Okay, Intimacy means there's proximity, there's closeness, probably even touching of some sort, all right? Because there's intimacy of whatever level we're describing here this morning, okay? So intimacy is closeness, is proximity, is touching. Um, abomination is the opposite. It is not closeness. It is far from you. It is driving from you. It is a revulsion. And there it is. He is intimate with the upright. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. There's a fundamental contrast which house are you sitting in today? Are you in the house of the righteous? The dwelling of the righteous? Or are you in the house of the wicked? Okay? And, uh, you know, we can understand that metaphorically related to a lot of things. In fellowship, out of fellowship, walking in the light, walking in darkness. Um, there's other applications for this beyond that. But in any event, who do we identify with and why? Though he scoffs at scoffers, he gives grace to the afflicted. There's a fundamental contrast. All right, you're either a scoffer or you're an afflicted, (laughs) okay? And uh, there it is again, saved and lost, you could view it in those terms. Uh, Carnal or spiritual, you could uh, view it in those terms. Fundamental contrast. The wise will inherit honor, but fools display dishonor. Fundamental contrast. Wisdom versus foolishness, honor versus dishonor. And so clearly, an abomination is something we want no part of, because God wants no part of it. If it's an abomination to his soul, he does not tolerate that. All right. The best place to turn for abominations is Leviticus, Leviticus 18. Got a whole string of them there in a concentrated way. So it's easy to spot, easy to see, and it really forms the... um, basis of our understanding of Toknavah for the remainder of the Old Testament. The vocabulary is Toknavah, number 8441. Toknavah, and that's the ayin instead of the olive, and so it's a different throat constriction. <laughs> Toknavah. Sometimes it's good to speak Hebrew in allergy season when you've got some natural congestion working on your behalf. Toknavah. 8441. 112 Old Testament uses of Toknavah. The Bible has a lot to say about abomination, even if uh, the world today doesn't want to talk about it. And how dare you call something an abomination? You, you judgmental person, you. Come on, where's the love? Okay. 112 uses of abomination. We better pay attention to it. And like I say, Leviticus 18 is, is really the, the preeminent passage that has such a concentrated use and lays it out there in this way. Um, paragraph beginning with uh, not really the whole chapter, goodness. Um, different applications that are wrong in uh, uh, fornication, different contexts there. Those that are not eligible to marry and different things. Anyway, pick up uh, verse 19. 
Uh, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness during her menstrual impurity. You shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife to be defiled with her. You shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Okay, so you see the tone of what this chapter is dealing with, what this uh, all of Leviticus 18 is dealing with and Leviticus 20. Uh, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Okay, We were designed male and female, and that's the biological design. That's the spiritual design. That's not only does the, do the bodies fit together that way, but the souls are compatible that way in marriage. Anything else is uh, an abomination. Also, you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall a woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. See, this goes both ways. It's not just men or women. It's male homosexuality, female homosexuality, uh, bestiality, either on a man or a woman's behalf. It is a perversion. Okay, That's another word we're not allowed to use anymore. <laughs> Perversions. Uh, but the Bible calls them perversions. They are not to be celebrated. They are not to be glorified. They certainly are not to be promoted as something normal and right and good. It is unhealthy. It is destructive. And it uh, actually sparks divine wrath. Not just on you. On your culture. Verse 24, do not defile yourselves by any of these things. It is a self-defilement. For by all these, the nations of the Goyim, the Gentiles, which I am casting out before you, have become defiled. It's not sexual sins are different than other sins in the fact that you also sin against your body and there are consequences that linger. Not only on you, but on your land. The land has become defiled. So how much defilement exists in the city of Austin these days? Well, how much fornication happens in the city of Austin these days? The land becomes defiled. There is an actual geographical consequence as creation is subject to humanity and bears the consequences of it. Sometimes folks don't think about that, but there it is. I mean, we all know how in, in terms of spiritual leadership, if the husband messes up, does a, uh, are there effects to the wife and the children? Of course. Damage gets done and, and folks get hurt. The pastor messes up, the flock gets hurt. A king messes up, the nation gets hurt. There are consequences. Now, given that creation is under the dominion of humanity and we defile a land, okay? Uh, fornication and bloodshed are the two things that will defile a land. And uh, here we see the, the fornication side of things. Um, verse 25, for the land has become defiled, therefore I have brought its punishment upon it, so that the land has spewed out its inhabitants. Consequences of, of prolonged defilement, the land itself learns how to vomit. <laughs> okay? And the land learns how to vomit. And uh, I believe that the uh, Western Hemisphere was vomiting when, uh, in the age of exploration when, when the gospel first reached these shores. And I believe that the demonism of the pagans of this continent uh, had brought about the defilement of the land in slavery, in fornication, in, in uh, murder, in innocent blood. We're going to talk about innocent blood today. In innocent blood, and the land was vomiting them out. God was giving this land to uh, other people besides the uh, people that had this land. And that's biblical, okay? 
It doesn't uh, go over too well in the multiculturalism society and that they're busy renaming Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day and, uh, and different things like that. All right. But as for you, if you don't want the land to vomit you, as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not do any of these abominations. They're there again. Now notice, when it says any of these abominations, I believe that we have plurality there, these abominations. And so um, that, that includes, I think, the totality of this entire list from 19 on down. All right? Not just the uh, homosexuality and the bestiality, um, but all of these aspects are called abominations. Neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. Oh, look at that. The Bible makes a distinction between natives and aliens. <laughs> okay. Something else doesn't fly well in our culture. Are we backwards and upside down or what? Our entire nation is insane. So pray hard. Verse 27. Again, this is Leviticus 18. Verse 27, for the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations and the land has become defiled. So the land will not spew you out should you defile it as it has spewed out the nation which has been before you. And if we get prideful and think, oh, well, that will never happen to us, think again. All right, because it happened to the Comanches. It happened to the people before the Comanches. It'll happen to us. It'll happen to the people after us. If uh, the Lord delays so long. Verse 29, whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. In other words, a legal code ought to be crafted by such that it's a criminal offense as well as a sin against God. And we remove that evil from our midst so that our society, our culture, our land is not defiled. And the chapter closes in verse 30. Thus you are to keep my charge that you do not practice any of the abominable customs. Notice it's practice, practice, practice. Any of the abominable customs which you have practiced. Okay, It's not about, oh, well, I was born this way. It's about the things you are practicing, the things you are doing so as to not defile yourself with them. I am Yahweh, your Elohim. All right, so this is our short survey of Toknava. We gave more back when we were detailing this in chapter 3. But this is Toknava, the abomination vocabulary from Leviticus 18, Proverbs 3.32, Proverbs 6. We have it twice here in this section. Once in verse 16, once in verse 19. In fact, many more times is coming up in the book of Proverbs, so stay tuned. Abomination is a revulsion a compelling impulse to drive something far from one's presence. And we see this aspect of this again and again and again and again. God wants nothing to do with these abominations. And that should be our attitude as well. All right, point C. As we get back now to our list. The purpose of this kind of numerical pattern is not to give a complete list. In other words, God hates more than these seven things. Did you realize that? <laughs> There's a lot of things God hates. And this is not an exhaustive list. 
This is what's known as the X and the X plus one pattern. It's a feature of Hebrew poetry. It's a feature of, of Hebrew thought. So the purpose of this kind of numerical pattern is not to give a complete list. Instead, it is to stress the final item, whatever that X plus one item is. So we call this the X, X plus one pattern. And, and in this case, it's six and seven. All right, It's not always six and seven. Sometimes it's two or three. Sometimes it's three and four. Sometimes it's five, four or five. We'll see different applications of it. It could be anything. Pick a number out of your hat, add one to it. Okay, or pick a number out of your hat and take one away from it, and then anyway, you'll use that X and X plus one pattern. I kind of think that, well, I'm probably wrong. Pop culture is going to betray me here in a minute. I'm going to let that go. There's a song out there that mentions a number, and I think I'm better off if I don't say any more from the pulpit this morning. Let's let that go. All right. Um, the, the purpose for this structure is to highlight that final item and to say this item is the worst of the worst. This is the main point I'm getting at in this passage. So in Proverbs chapter 6, the main point he's getting at is one who spreads strife among brothers. That's the main deal. That's the one that he hates above anything else. All these other things, uh, they rank below that, okay? It's like saying that, you know, this is my all-time favorite, um, my all-time favorite whatever. And all these other ones, yeah, they're good, but this one is the greatest. This one is the pinnacle. So whether it's haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, he hates all that. He hates uh, a heart that devises uh, wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. You know, our feet are supposed to be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We're supposed to run to unbelievers to give them the gospel instead of running with the unbelievers to commit the next sin on the list, <laughs> okay? Uh, what, are we, what, what are our feet prepared to do? Well, if they run rapidly to evil, those aren't feet that, uh, that God is pleased with. That God hates those feet. There's other feet that he finds beautiful, the feet of those uh, that uh, are prepared to give the gospel. That's right. Uh, a false witness who utters lies. Now, that one kind of seems like he hit that one twice, didn't he? Didn't we have a lying tongue already earlier in the list? Now we got a false witness who utters lies. So in all these things that he hates, uh, there's some repetition on this, redundancy. Um, not an exhaustive list, so we're not surprising. We're not surprised by that. The pinnacle of this, though, is spreading strife among brothers. What is the brotherhood designed to be anyway? In, in terms of just a natural earthly family, but how about in, in, um, for Israel in their sense of, of uh, tribes and clans and families? Uh, but how about in, in the church sense? Bring it into a New Testament application and strife among brothers, it just gets magnified even more. So the strife spreader is the pinnacle of God's hatred. And, and a lot of this, I think, goes back, again, as part of the angelic conflict and what happened in Satan's rebellion, what happened in the strife that he stirred up, and what is it now that he is, re- that he is resolving in the realm of humanity, that humanity can illustrate uh, true brothers in ways that angels never could. So that, uh, that takes us places. All right, I have to let that go for today. Uh, let's look over at some of these other examples. How about Job 5.19? 
Look to the book of Job, chapter 5. And we have some other illustrations of this construction, the X and X plus 1 poetry that we find here. Job 5.19. Is this Eliphaz? Yes. The first of the three stooges. (laughs) The, The critics that came to condemn Job. Eliphaz gets two chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5. And he's really, he's, uh, he's got a good head of steam going. He's, uh, he's headed towards his uh, closing arguments here. He says in verse 17, How happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Come on, Job. All you got to do is confess, admit to what you've done. Uh, be thankful that God loves you enough to discipline you. Be happy about this reproof. Uh, for he, for he, verse eighteen, God inflicts pain and gives relief. He wounds and his hands also heal. From six troubles he will deliver you. Even in seven, evil will not touch you. And so here's an example of of um, using this num- this numerical pattern, the six and the seven formula. There, in famine he will redeem you from death. In war, from the power of the sword. You'll be hidden from the scourge of the tongue. You will not be afraid of violence when it comes. You will laugh at violence and famine, and you will not be afraid of the wild beasts. Anyway, there's some fun poetry there when you read through that. Now, he's wrong, of course, in terms of applying this specifically to Job, but his basic premise is not incorrect. His basic premise is, yes, God is faithful. He will rescue you. There's no limit to what God will rescue you from. All right, um, here's another example from Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. And these are not uh, Solomon's, these are augurs, whoever he was. The son of Jaka, whoever he was. (laughs) The oracle, whatever that is. I'm teasing. I know what an oracle is. But we don't know who Augur was, and we don't know who Jaka was. And then the man declares to Ithiel, whoever he was, to Ithiel and to Ukel, whoever they were. All right? And it's not important necessarily for us today. They were known as this chapter was added to the Proverbs of Solomon and uh, was compiled in the canon of Scripture along with Proverbs 31. All right, so Proverbs 30. I don't want to read the whole chapter. Although I do like verse 2. <laughs> it's kind of, I'm going to put that on my tombstone. Put that on my business cards. Surely I am more stupid than any man. I do not have the understanding of a man. All right. So we get down to the, to the idioms. The uh, first one shows up in verse 18. There are three things which are too wonderful for me, four, which I do not understand. Okay? So it's not six and seven. It's not six things the Lord hates and seven which are an abomination to his soul. It's three and four. Okay? So the numbers are different. That doesn't matter that the numbers are different because we, we have a number, X, and then we have X plus one. In this case, three is the X, or X is three, and the X plus one is four. All right? And so now he spells them out. The way of an eagle in the sky. All right, that's wonderful. You ever think about that? Man, it'd be kind of cool. Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be cool to fly like an eagle and just, you know, look down on people and see stuff? 
Okay, yeah, that's wonderful. The way of a serpent on a rock. All right. You know, in some ways it'd be kind of fun to slither around and lay out in the sun all day and nothing much else to do. And, and when people see you, they scream and they, they run the other direction. I kind of like that. The way of a ship in the middle of a sea. That's why I never joined the Navy. That's, that's too wonderful. I mean, goodness. I, I can't imagine being on a ship and seeing nothing but water everywhere. Just looking around and seeing nothing. No land, nothing. That would, I, no, I could not, I could not do that. And then, uh, but as wonderful as all those things are, and then they boggle the mind, the way of a man with a maid. Oh my goodness. And that's really the fourth item. That's the main point. The one that is just too um, inexplicable or inscrutable. For which I do not understand. I do not understand. You might have wisdom to write a chapter of the book of Proverbs in the Bible, but that doesn't mean you understand women. Okay? I'm not trying to be too funny with this, but that's the, the, the point is being made here. The way of a man with a maid. Uh, verse 21, another example. We've got three of them right here in this chapter. Under three things, the earth quakes, and under four, it cannot bear up. And so, yes, we can discuss the first three of these, but the real issue is the fourth one. So, under a slave, when he becomes king, that's not good, <laughs> okay? What kind of king is he going to be? Um, a fool, when he is satisfied with food, okay? Earthquakes at that. Um under an unloved woman when she gets a husband look out and then a maid servant when she supplants her mistress all right and uh i hope to have a better understanding of this chapter before we get that far <laughs> i haven't studied it i'm not prepared to teach it third example in the same chapter uh, down to verse 29 there are three things which are stately in their march even four which are stately when they walk. So there's the lion, mighty among the beasts, does not retreat before any, the strutting rooster, the male goat also, and a king when his army is with him. Eh, okay. Anyway, that's the nature of the poetry. X and X plus one. Amos makes use of this in chapter one and chapter two. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. If you reach Obadiah, you've gone too far. You're actually much more likely to find Amos before you find Obadiah. All right. Amos, chapter 1 and chapter 2. I think Amos really uh, enjoyed this. (laughs) He was fond of this. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. So I will send fire upon the house of Hazael, and it will consume the citadels of Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon, and him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden. So all the people of Aram will go exiled into Kir, says 
the Lord. So there's the first of those rebuking messages to Damascus. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four. Uh, Gaza gets the next poem in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Okay, so there could be three things leading up to that, but boy, when number four hits, game over. Okay, you're done. God says, that's it. There's no repentance from this. It's game over. And uh, describes the wrath that's on the way there. Uh, Because they deported an entire population to deliver it up to Eden. So I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza and I will consume her citadels. I will also cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod and uh, him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will even unleash my power upon Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines will perish. You ever study the, the five cities of the, of the uh, Philistines? They had five, they're called a pentopolis. They had five leading cities of the Philistines. Then the next one in verse 9, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Again, they delivered up an entire population to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre and consume her citadels. Then verse 11, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Verse 13, How did I leave 13 off my slide? Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of the sons of Ammon and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. All right, note to self, add verse 13 to my Amos list. So you got the idea here. You get into chapter two, it continues. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Verse 4 and verse 6 likewise. Here's Now we get to the Jews. <laughs> verse 4, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Judah and uh, for four. And then Israel in verse 6. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. All right, so there's the issue there. So when we come back to this list in Proverbs now, in these seven sins, what's the one that really tops all the rest? Number seven, tops all the rest. Seven sins stimulate the sovereign's soul sana. <laughs> seven sins. And this isn't the Roman Catholic medieval seven deadly sins, by the way. There is no passage of Scripture that outlines the seven deadly sins that the medieval Roman church came up with. But this passage does list seven, and these sins do stimulate God's soul. He says they are an abomination to my soul. And they bring about the sana, the hatred. Sana is the noun from sane. They stimulate the sovereign's soul, sana, hatred. You don't want to be under the sovereign soul, sana. Okay? We want to keep ourselves in the love of God. Okay? Keep yourselves in the love of God. Because if you don't, where are you? If you're not in the love of God. Okay? And so the list, and we'll just simply spell them out. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Not too complicated. Um, the first of which is the haughty eyes. The eyes ramoth. The lion ramoth. And it's interesting because the first five of these are all body parts. Okay? They're all body parts. 
So what do we want to say? You know, don't hate the sin, hate the body part. <laughs> you know, um, remarkable, the object of God's hatred is, well, the sin, but the person who's doing the sin. And if they stop doing the sin, then they will no longer be the object of God's hatred. That's another one of the myths. Love the sinner and hate the sin kind of a thing, as if it's a little catchphrase or a little you know buzz expression or whatever. Yes, you, you love the, the sinner. Of course you love the sinner. And at the same time, you hate the sinner. That's what God does. All right, so we start with eyes remoth. Eyes remoth. High, exalted eyes. Uh, the idea, Rama, uh, Ramoth, uh, the idea of Ram, like Abraham is the, is the high, exalted, is a father of many, uh, many peoples. Um, anyway, there's uh, a whole vocabulary study there on Ram if you want to do it, uh, or Rama. But these are the eyes, Ramoth. High, exalted eyes reflect the haughtiness of pride. So your eyes are lifted up above where they should be. And uh, you're walking around uh, with these exalted eyes as this high and mighty person. Psalm 18, 27, Isaiah 2, verse 12, verse 13, verse 14. We should remember that pretty well since we're in an Isaiah study at the moment. Admittedly, it was 47 weeks ago, but still. <laughs> we're, we're in an Isaiah study at the moment on Sunday mornings. More than simple pride or arrogance, this expression epitomizes Satan's revolutionary intentions, okay? It's one thing to have prideful moments. It's something else to exist in a prideful lifestyle. It's another thing entirely where this characterizes your entire being. Epitomizes Satan's revolutionary intentions. So this is where it starts. And I think if you don't have your eyes fixed firmly on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, then your eyes, my eyes, I'll make this personal, if my eyes aren't fixed on the Lord, where are they going to go? They're going to be haughty eyes before I know it. But I need to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus. Learn from that example. Who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despised the shame. All right, Psalm 18. Let's take a look at that. Psalm 18, 27. These haughty eyes. And, and you know, it's one thing. Obviously, we all sin. Everybody sins in many portions, in many ways, right? We, but a momentary uh, sin in, in a realm of pride is one thing. But an entire lifestyle of pride where, where you're... you're uh, you're characterized by that attitude. That's, that's something else. That's an entirely different animal there. So Psalm 18, 27. And there's other... Con- let's back up to 25. And even prior to that. It's a, it's a celebration that David uh, is rejoicing at how faithful God is. He's faithful when he's doing well, faithful when he's not doing well. He's faithful either way. Um, verse 20 says, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me. So you walk in the integrity of your ways and you leave the results with the Lord, whatever he chooses to do. I've kept the ways of the Lord. I've not acted wickedly. uh, I've not wickedly departed from my God. His ordinances were before me. I did not put away his statutes from me. 
See, the first thing that's going to take you down the wrong path is you, 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 know, you start ignoring his word. You get sloppy in your, in your dedication to truth. I was also blameless with him. I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyes. Now we get to these principles. With the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. Okay, And so these are the right attitudes. This is where we want to keep ourselves so that God um, expresses that towards us. With the crooked, you show yourself astute. God himself isn't going to be crooked, but he will like for like in kind. He will recompense us for our crookedness. For you have say, uh, for you have for you save an afflicted people, but haughty eyes you abase. This is the fundamental concept behind he is opposed to the proud and he gives grace to the humble. This is the the uh, essence of this in a nutshell. You save an afflicted people. Who's an afflicted people? <laughs> well, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. The afflicted people is uh, those that name the name of Christ and become the targets for this cosmos system. So you save an afflicted people, but haughty eyes you abase. For you light my lamp, the Lord my God illumines my darkness. By you I can run upon a troop, by my God I can leap over a wall. Oh, I can read this whole chapter. It's a fun one. All right. But high, exalted eyes reflect the haughtiness of pride. And when you get an attitude like that, who are you, oh pot, (laughs) okay? Who are you, you you sniveling dust creature? Do you not tremble before your creator? You're you're, you're very proud of yourself, clearly. But, uh, you know, the creator God of the universe does not share that perspective. He's not impressed with your own personal glory. Isaiah chapter 2. And a trinity of verses here, 12, 13, 14. This is the day of reckoning, the day of recompense. We saw the language of recompense in, in Psalm 18. We see it here also, a day of reckoning. The Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, against everyone who is lifted up. This is our Ramah our exaltation vocabulary, that he may be abased. Those that are lifted up improperly, remember, we're not up to us to lift up ourselves. We humble ourselves. He's the one that that lifts us up at the proper time. He exalts us at the proper time. If we're exalting ourselves, it's not the proper time (laughs) because we're supposed to wait for him to be the one to do it. And fundamentally, it's not even the church age, all right? Uh, we, we're to be faithful unto death, and he will give us the crown of life. Uh, it's when the, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There is nothing, there is no exaltation that's ever promised in time. There may be special blessings in time, but there is no exaltation or glory that's, that's promised in time. Our exaltation will come when, uh, when we are resurrected, glorified, and the sin nature is removed, when we have the capacity to handle that kind of exaltation <laughs> in Christ. I'm thankful I'm not going to have that kind of exaltation to my sin natures in the grave, okay? With this dust body that's going back to the ashes and the dust. Verse 13, it will be against all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, 
against all the lofty mountains, against all the hills that are lifted up, against every high tower, every fortified wall. Anyway, it goes on. Those are the 12, 13, and 14 have the same Ramoth-type expression here. Against the ships of Tarshish, against the beautiful craft, the pride of man will be humbled. It has to be. It absolutely has to be because the only thing that will be glorified in the millennial kingdom is going to be Jesus Christ. Nothing else is going to be magnified but our Savior Jesus Christ and us in Him. Okay? As it says, the pride of man will be humbled, the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. <laughs> the celebrity of the universe is the only exalted name in that day. Isn't that great? So more than simple pride or arrogance, this expression epitomizes Satan's revolutionary intentions. You know, when you read Job 41 and you see the, uh, the judgment upon uh, Leviathan, and you ought to be familiar with this. I turn there occasionally, although it's been a while. Job 41 And when you see the pinnacle of creation, Satan himself is the pinnacle of creation. Nothing greater has ever been created in, in might, in majesty. Nothing on earth is like him. Okay? And, uh, man. <laughs> anyway, read through this and you see the dragon. Read through this and you can hear the uh, boasts of, of smog in the lonely mountain, okay? You can hear the dragon just mocking the little hobbit trying to sneak in and steal his stuff, right? Uh, I believe this has to be the passage that Tolkien had in mind when he, when he wrote uh, The Hobbit and the, and the uh, boasting of the dragon there in, in smog. Some of the, the words are almost word for word, talking about his... Uh, in verse 12, I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his orderly frame. Who can strip off his outer armor? Who can come within his double mail? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth there is terror. His strong scales or his pride shut up as with a tight seal. One is so near to another, no air can come between them. You know, if it's airtight, how are you going to get a sword through there? Okay. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezes flash forth light. His eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. This fire-breathing dragon and, and these moron commentaries that try to tell you it's a crocodile in the Nile River somewhere that's being described here. I've never seen a fire-breathing crocodile. Out of his nostrils smoke goes forth from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals. A flame goes forth from his mouth. Anyway, <laughs> when he raises himself up, the mighty fear, that's verse 25, because of the crashing there, bewildered. We get, anyway, we get down to this. Verse 33 says, Nothing on earth is like him, one made without fear. He is the pinnacle of all the created beings, in this case it's the angelic beings prior to the creation of humanity, all right, nothing on earth is like him, one made without fear. He looks on everything that is high. This is the haughty look. 
This is why it's the pinnacle of what, you know, part of what God hates here in this chain. Uh, it's the first one listed of what God hates. This pride of Satan is the first of all the, the uh, rebellions against God's will. So he looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. That's why this uh, expression epitomizes Satan's revolutionary intentions. When you get wrapped up in your own personal systems of pride, what are you really doing? You are submitting to the king of pride. You have become a son of pride. He is king over all the sons of pride. In some respects, I think this expression becomes a title for the one-third of the angels, the fallen angels that departed from the, uh, the body of the elect angels in the angelic rebellion. That they were given this, uh, they were given this title, sons of pride, and God labeled uh, Leviathan as their king, the dragon as their king. And clearly, that's uh, Revelation backs that up in the sense that Michael is waging war with his angels, and the dragon is waging war with his angels. He is the king of these fallen angels. So that's the first thing that he hates. All right, we go from the eyes to the tongue. It is a tongue shecker. So we had eyes, Ramoth, and we have tongue shecker. Tongue shecker, the lying tongue. Shaker is uh, to lie. The shecker is uh, the application here with respect to the lies themselves. The stock and trade for evil spirits. In fact, motivated by the pride. <laughs> I was trying to ponder that the other day. What, is it possible in humility to lie? Or is every lie a reflection of arrogance? Is every lie a verbal expression of a heart of arrogance? And um, I didn't, it was just a pondering on Mopac. I didn't have my Bible handy. I wasn't <laughs> tracking down verses or different things. I was just considering the, the attitude of humility. Why would, why would, what would there be to lie about in, in the realm of humility? What are you trying to accomplish in a lie anyway? All right. So it's the stock and trade for the evil spirits, absolutely rejected by the Psalm 119 psalmist. And uh, we'll have a trinity of this coming up in Proverbs 12. So we'll stand by and when the book of Proverbs we'll talk about the liar. Uh, we'll get a big uh, a dose of it in Proverbs 12. We can start with that. Proverbs chapter 12. And we'll have to, I'm almost out of the time anyway, so we'll come back to this next week. We've had hate classes now for a couple of Wednesdays. We'll have a lying class next week. All right have a lot of fun with that on Facebook when you say, hey, we're having hate lessons next week. All right. What am I headed for? Oh, Proverbs 12. We're looking at the shekher. There's a shekher trinity here in Proverbs 12. Verse 17, verse 19, and verse 22. He who speaks truth tells what is right, but a false witness deceit. Uh, verse 18 says, there's one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Verse 19, truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. And that'll be some fun. We'll teach that one. The momentary nature of a lie. 
but the truth is established forever. Uh, verse 20, deceit is in the heart of those who defies evil. That's why I say it comes from the heart. The deceitful tongue is a verbal expression, but it starts in the heart. Count by counselors of peace, of joy. Verse 21, no harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Where's my third? Oh, verse 22. There's a third one. Lying lips. All right, guess what? Abomination to the Lord. But those who deal faithfully are his delight. You know, why is lying so bad? You know, humanity has this division that says, okay, murder is bad. Lying, eh, not so much. Okay, it was just a little white lie. Even the concept of a little white lie is a great big fat lie. Okay, you know, any lie is a verbal expression contrary to the nature of the God of truth. Murder is bad, not because the, the poor schlub's dead now, too bad for him. No, murder is bad because you are attacking the image of God in his, as, as light and the source of life. You are, but you are shedding the blood of man. We'll talk about that, hands that, are, that shed blood. Why is the, innocent, the shedding of innocent blood, why is that... Why is that an object of God's hatred? Okay? Because God has designed a plan of redemption whereby innocent blood purchases us. (laughs) Innocent blood is precious to our Father. Anyway, so if you shed innocent blood, oh my. If If you murder the image of God, then by man your blood will be shed. There is the capital punishment mandated because of how seriously God treats this. Likewise, lying. Satan was a murderer from the beginning. He was a liar from the beginning. You think, it's kind of strange to put those two things together as many times, but no, it's not strange at all. I love the way the Scripture put those things together. Lying and murder. And, and you know, it's the history of humanity, right? Cain murdered Abel, then he lied about it. <laughs> All right, so um, yes, it is a uh, an abomination in Proverbs twelve, verse seventeen, verse nineteen, verse twenty-two. Um, we'll pick up on this next week because I want to spend some time with the demons, with the evil spirits. We'll talk about the the nature of the psalmist who loved truth. He identified with truth. How many times in Psalm one nineteen is it the word of God has center stage in the psalmist's life? And because he's living in the truth, the idea of a lie is just, is just unthinkable to him. All right. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness, for your truth. Thank you for blessing us, Father, with the privilege of studying to show ourselves approved. Father, we are delighted to obey your command, to be diligent, to present ourselves before you. Workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name I do pray. Amen.